Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? Four. From that moment, I began to assume a certain interest in the eyes of Mrs. Oak, or rather, I began to perceive that I had a means of securing her attention. Perhaps it was wrong of me to do so, and I have often reproached myself very seriously later on. But after all, how was I to guess that I was making mischief merely by chiming in for the sake of the portrait I had undertaken, and of a very harmless psychological mania, with what was merely the fad, a little romantic affectation or eccentricity of a scatterbrained and eccentric young woman. How in the world should I have dreamed that I was handling explosive substances? A man is surely not responsible if the people with whom he is forced to deal, and whom he deals with as with all the rest of the world, are quite different from all other human creatures. So, if indeed I did at all conduce to mischief, I really can't blame myself. I had met in Mrs. Oak an almost unique subject for a portrait painter of my particular sort, and a most singular, bizarre personality. I could not possibly do my subject justice so long as I was kept at a distance, prevented from studying the real character of the woman. I require to put her into play and I ask you whether any more innocent way of doing so could be found than talking to a woman and letting her talk about an absurd fancy she had for a couple of ancestors of hers of the time of Charles I, and a poet whom they'd murdered, particularly as I studiously respected the prejudices of my host and refrained from mentioning the matter, and tried to restrain Mrs. Oak from doing so in the presence of William Oak himself. I had certainly guessed correctly, To resemble the Alice Oak of the year 1626 was the caprice, the mania, the pose, the whatever you may call it, of the Alice Oak of 1880. And to perceive this resemblance was the sure way of gaining her good graces. It was the most extraordinary craze of all the extraordinary crazes of childless and idle women that I had ever met. But it was more than that. It was admirably characteristic. It finished off the strange figure of Mrs. Oak as I saw it in my imagination. This bizarre creature of enigmatic, far-fetched exquisiteness, that she should have no interest in the present, but only an eccentric passion for the past. It seemed to give the meaning to the absent look in her eyes, to her irrelevant and far-off smile. It was like the words to a weird piece of gypsy music, this that she, who was so different, so distant from all women of her own time, should try and identify herself with a woman of the past, that she should have a kind of flirtation, but more of this anon. I told Mrs. Oak that I had learned from her husband the outline of the tragedy, or mystery, whichever it was, of Alice Oak, daughter of Virgil Pomfret, and the poet Christopher Lovelock. That look of vague contempt, of a desire to shock which I had noticed before, came into her beautiful, pale, diaphanous face. I suppose my husband was very shocked at the whole matter, she said, told it to you with as little detail as possible, and assured you very solemnly that he hoped the whole story might be a mere dreadful calumny. Poor Willie. I remember already when we were children, and I used to come with my mother to spend Christmas at Oakhurst, and my cousin was down here for his holidays, 
how I used to horrify him by insisting upon dressing up in shawls and waterproofs and playing the story of the wicked Mrs. Oak. And he always piously refused to do the part of Nicholas when I wanted to have the scene on Coates Common. I didn't know then that I was like the original Alice Oak. I found it out only after our marriage. You really think that I am? She certainly was, particularly at the moment, as she stood in a white Van Dyke dress with the green of the parkland rising up behind her and the low sun catching her short locks and surrounding her head, her exquisitely bowed head, with a pale yellow halo. But I confess I thought the original Alice Oak, siren and murderous though she might be, very uninteresting compared with this wayward and exquisite creature whom I had rashly promised myself to send down to posterity in all her unlikely wayward exquisiteness. One morning, while Mr. Oak was dispatching his Saturday heap of conservative manifestos and rural decisions, he was the justice of the peace in a most literal sense, penetrating into cottages and huts, defending the weak and admonishing the ill-conducted. One morning, while I was making one of my many pencil sketches, alas, they are all that remain to me now, of my future sitter, Mrs. Oak gave me her version of the story of Alice Oak and Christopher Lovelock. Do you suppose there was anything between them? I asked. That she was ever in love with him? How do you explain the part which tradition ascribes to her in the supposed murder? One has heard of women and their lovers who have killed the husband, but a woman who combines with her husband to kill her lover, or at least a man who is in love with her, that is surely very singular. I was absorbed in my drawing, and really thinking very little of what I was saying. I don't know, she answered pensively, with that distant look in her eyes. Alice Oak was very proud, I'm sure. She may have loved the poet very much, and yet been indignant with him, hated having to love him. She may have felt that she had a right to rid herself of him, and to call upon her husband to help her do so. Good heavens, what a fearful idea, I exclaimed, half laughing. Don't you think, after all, that Mr. Oak might be right in saying that it's easier and more comfortable to take the whole story as a pure invention? I cannot take it as an invention, answered Mrs. Oak contemptuously, because I happen to know that it is true. Indeed, I answered, working away at my sketch and enjoying putting this strange creature as I said to myself through her paces. How is that? How does one know that anything is true in this world, she replied evasively. Because one does. Because one feels it to be true, I suppose. And with that far-off look in her light eyes, she relapsed into silence. Have you ever read any of Lovelock's poetry? She asked me suddenly the next day. Uh, Lovelock, I answered, for I had forgotten the name. Lovelock who? But I stopped remembering the prejudices of my host who was seated next to me at the table. Lovelock, who was killed by Mr. Oakes and my ancestors. And she looked full at her husband, as if in perverse enjoyment of the evidence annoyance which it caused him. Alice, he entreated in a low voice, his whole face crimson. For mercy's sake, don't talk about such things before the servants. Mrs. Oak burst into a high, light, rather hysterical laugh. The laugh of a naughty child. The servants, gracious heavens. Do you suppose they haven't heard the story? Why, it's as well known as Oakhurst itself in the neighbourhood. 
Don't they believe that Lovelock has been seen about the house? Haven't they all heard his footsteps in the big corridor? Haven't they, my dear Willie, noticed a thousand times that you will never stay a minute alone in the yellow drawing room, that you run out of it like a child, if I happen to leave you there for a minute? True. How was it I hadn't noticed that, or rather, that I only now remembered having noticed it? The yellow drawing room was one of the most charming rooms in the house, a large, bright room, hung with yellow damask and panelled with carvings, that opened straight out onto the lawn, far superior to the room in which we habitually sat, which was comparatively gloomy. This time Mr. Oak struck me as really too childish. I felt an intense desire to badger him. The yellow drawing room, I exclaimed. Does this interesting literary character haunt the yellow drawing room? Do tell me about it. What happened there? Mr. Oak made a painful effort to laugh. Nothing ever happened there so far as I know, he said, and rose from the table. Really? I asked incredulously. Nothing did happen there, answered Mrs. Oak slowly, playing mechanically with a fork and picking out the pattern of the tablecloth. That is just the extraordinary circumstance that so far as anyone knows, nothing ever did happen there. And yet that room has an evil reputation. No member of our family, they say, can bear to sit there alone for more than a minute. You see, William evidently cannot. Have you ever seen or heard anything strange there? I asked my host. He shook his head. Nothing, he answered curtly, and lit his cigar. I presume you have not, I asked, half laughing of Mrs. Oak, since you don't mind sitting in that room for hours alone. How do you explain this uncanny reputation, since nothing ever happened there? Perhaps something is destined to happen there in the future, she answered in her absent voice. And then she suddenly added, Suppose you paint my portrait in that room. Mr. Oak suddenly turned round. He was very white and looked as if he were going to say something, but desisted. Why do you worry Mr. Oak like that? I asked when he had gone into his smoking room with his usual bundle of papers. It's very cruel of you, Mrs. Oak. You ought to have more consideration for people who believe in such things, although you may not be able to put yourself in their frame of mind. Who tells you that I don't believe in such things, as you call them? She answered abruptly. Come, she said after a minute. I want to show you why I believe in Christopher Lovelock. Come with me into the yellow room. Five. What Mrs. Oak showed me in the yellow room was a large bundle of papers, some printed and some manuscript, but all of them brown with age, which she took out of an old Italian ebony inlaid cabinet. It took her some time to get them, as a complicated arrangement of double locks and false drawers had to be put in play. And while she was doing so, I looked around the room, in which I had only been three or four times before. It was certainly the most beautiful room in this beautiful house, and as it seemed to me now, the most strange. It was long and low, with something that made you think of the cabin of a ship, with a great mullioned window that let in, as it were, a perspective of the brownish-green parkland, dotted with oaks, and sloping upwards to the distant line of bluish firs against the horizon. The walls were hung with flowered damask, whose yellow faded to brown, united with the reddish colour of the carved wainscoting and the carved oaken beams. 
For the rest, it reminded me more of an Italian room than an English one. The furniture was Tuscan, of the early 17th century, inlaid and carved. There were a couple of faded allegorical pictures by some Bolognese master on the walls, and in a corner, among a stack of dwarf orange trees, a little Italian harpsichord of exquisite curve and slenderness, with flowers and landscapes painted upon its cover. In a recess was a shelf of old books, mainly English and Italian poets of the Elizabethan time, and close by it, placed upon a carved wedding chest, a large and beautiful melon-shaped lute. The panes of the mullioned window were open, and yet the air seemed heavy with an indescribable heady perfume, not that of any growing flower, but like that of old stuff that should have lain for years among spices. It is a beautiful room, I exclaimed. I should awfully like to paint you in it. But I had scarcely spoken the words when I felt I had done wrong. This woman's husband could not bear the room, and it seemed to me vaguely as if he were right in detesting it. Mrs. Oak took no notice of my exclamation, but beckoned me to the table where she was standing, sorting the papers. Look, she said, these are all poems by Christopher Lovelock, and touching the yellow papers with delicate and reverent fingers, she commenced reading some of them out loud in a slow, half-audible voice. There were songs in the style of those of Herrick, Waller, and Drayton, complaining for the most part of the cruelty of a lady called Dryup, in whose name was evidently concealed a reference to that of the mistress of Oakhurst. The songs were graceful, and not without a certain faded passion. But I was thinking not of them, but of the woman who was reading them to me. Mrs. Oak was standing with the brownish-yellow wall as a background to her white brocade dress, which, in its stiff seventeenth-century make, seemed but to bring out more clearly the slightness, the exquisite suppleness of her tall figure. She held the papers in one hand and leaned the other, as if for support, on the inlaid cabinet by her side. Her voice, which was delicate, shadowy like her person, had a curious throbbing cadence as if she were reading the words of a melody and restraining herself with difficulty from singing it. And as she read, her long, slender throat throbbed slightly, and a faint redness came into her thin face. She evidently knew the verses by heart, and her eyes were mostly fixed with that distant smile in them, with which harmonized a constant, tremulous little smile in her lips. That is how I would wish to paint her, I exclaimed within myself, and scarcely noticed what struck me on thinking over the scene, that this strange being read these verses as one might fancy a woman would read love verses addressed to herself. Those are all written for Alice Oak, Alice the daughter of Virgil Pomfret, she said slowly, folding up the papers. I found them at the bottom of this cabinet. Can you doubt the reality of Christopher Lovelock now? The question was an illogical one, for to doubt of the existence of Christopher Lovelock was one thing, and to doubt of the mode of his death was another. But somehow, I did feel convinced. Look, she said, when she had replaced the poems, I will show you something else. Among the flowers that stood on the upper story of her writing table, for I found that Mrs. Oak had a writing table in the yellow room, stood as on an altar a small black carved frame 
with a silk curtain drawn over it, the sort of thing behind which you would have expected to find a head of Christ or of the Virgin Mary. She drew the curtain and displayed a large-sized miniature representing a young man with auburn curls and a peaked auburn beard dressed in black, but with lace about his neck and large pear-shaped pearls in his ears. A wistful, melancholy face. Mrs. Oak took the miniature religiously off its stand and showed me, written in faded characters upon the back, the name Christopher Lovelock and the date 1626. I found this in the secret drawer of that cabinet, together with the heap of poems, she said, taking the miniature out of my hand. I was silent for a minute. Does, uh, does Mr. Oak know that you've got it here? I asked, and then wondered. What in the world had impelled me to put such a question? Mrs. Oak smiled that smile of contemptuous indifference. I have never hidden it from anyone. If my husband disliked my having it, he might have taken it away, I suppose. It belongs to him, since it was found in his house. I didn't answer, but walked mechanically towards the door. There was something heady and depressive in this beautiful room, something, I thought, almost repulsive in this exquisite woman. She seemed to me suddenly perverse and dangerous. I scarcely know why, but I neglected Mrs. Oak that afternoon. I went to Mr. Oak's study and sat opposite to him, smoking, while he was engrossed in his accounts, his reports, and electioneering papers. On the table, above the heap of paper-bound volumes and pigeonholed documents, was a sole ornament of his den, a little photograph of his wife done some years before. I don't know why, but as I sat and watched him, with his florid, honest, manly beauty, working away conscientiously with that little perplexed frown of his, I felt intensely sorry for this man. But this feeling did not last. There was no help for it. Oak was not as interesting as Mrs. Oak, and it required too great an effort to pump up sympathy for this normal, excellent, exemplary young squire in the presence of so wonderful a creature as his wife. So I let myself go to the habit of allowing Mrs. Oak Daly to talk over her strange craze, or rather of drawing her out about it. I confess that I derived a morbid and exquisite pleasure in doing so. It was so characteristic in her, so appropriate to the house. It completed her personality so perfectly and made it so much easier to conceive a way of painting her. I made up my mind, little by little, while working at William Oak's portrait. He proved a less easy subject than I had anticipated, and despite his conscientious efforts, was a nervous, uncomfortable sitter, silent and brooding. I made up my mind that I would paint Mrs. Oak, standing by the cabinet in the yellow room, in the white Van Dyke dress copied from the portrait of her ancestress. Mr. Oak might resent it. Mrs. Oak even might resent it. They may refuse to take the picture to pay for it, to allow me to exhibit. They might force me to run my umbrella through the picture. No matter. That picture should be painted, if merely for the sake of having painted it. For I felt it was the only thing I could do, and that it would be far away my best work. I told neither of my resolution but prepared sketch after sketch of Mrs. Oak while continuing to paint her husband. 
Mrs. Oak was a silent person, more silent even than her husband, for she did not feel bound, as he did, to attempt to entertain a guest or to show any interest in him. She seemed to spend her life, a curious, inactive, half-invalidish life, broken by sudden fits of childish cheerfulness, in an eternal daydream, strolling about the house and grounds, arranging the quantities of flowers that always filled all the rooms, beginning to read, and then throwing aside novels and books of poetry, of which she always had a large number, and, I believe, lying for hours, doing nothing, on a couch, in that yellow drawing-room, which, with her sole exception, no member of the Oak family had ever been known to stay in alone. Little by little, I began to suspect, and to verify, another eccentricity of this eccentric being, and to understand why there were stringent orders never to disturb her in that yellow room. It had been the habit at Oakhurst, as at one or two other English manor houses, to keep a certain amount of the clothes of each generation, more particularly wedding dresses. A certain carved oaken press, of which Mr. Oak once displayed the contents to me, was a perfect museum of costumes, male and female, from the early years of the seventeenth to the end of the eighteenth century, a thing to take away the breath of a bric-a-brac collector, an antiquary, or a genre painter. Mr. Oak was none of these, and therefore took but little interest in the collection, save in so far as it interested his family feeling. Still, he seemed well acquainted with the contents of that press. He was turning over the clothes for my benefit when suddenly I noticed that he frowned. I know not what impelled me to say. By the way, have you any dresses of that Mrs. Oak, whom your wife resembles so much? Have you uh, got that particular white dress she was painted in, perhaps? Oak of Oakhurst flushed very red. Oh, uh, we have it, he answered hesitatingly, but uh, it isn't here at present. I can't find it. I suppose, he blurted out with an effort, that Alice has got it. Mrs. Oak sometimes has the fancy of having some of these old things down. I suppose she takes ideas from them. A sudden light dawned in my mind. The white dress in which I had seen Mrs. Oak in the yellow room the day that she showed me Lovelock verses was not, as I had thought, a modern copy. It was the original dress of Alice Oak, the daughter of Virgil Pomfret, the dress in which, perhaps, Christopher Lovelock had seen her in that very room. The idea gave me a delightful, a picturesque shudder. I said nothing, but I pictured to myself Mrs. Oak sitting in that yellow room, that room which no Oak of Oakhurst save herself ventured to remain in alone, in the dress of her ancestress, confronting, as it were, that vague, haunting something that seemed to fill the place, that vague presence, it seemed to me, of the murdered cavalier poet. Mrs. Oak, as I have said, was extremely silent, as a result of being extremely indifferent. She really did not care in the least about anything, except her own ideas and daydreams, except when every now and then she was seized with a sudden desire to shock the prejudices or superstitions of her husband. Very soon she got into the way of never talking to me at all, save about Alice and Nicholas Oak and Christopher Lovelock, and then, when the fit seized her, she would go on by the hour, never asking herself whether I was or was not equally interested in the strange craze that fascinated her. 
It so happened that I was. I loved to listen to her going on discussing by the hour the merits of Lovelock's poems and analysing her feelings and those of her two ancestors. It was quite wonderful to watch the exquisite, exotic creature in one of these moods, with the distant look in her grey eyes and the absent-looking smile in her thin cheeks. Talking as if she had intimately known these people of the seventeenth century, discussing every minute mood of theirs, detailing every scene between them and their victim, talking of Alice and Nicholas and Lovelock as she might of her most intimate friends, of Alice particularly, and of Lovelock. She seemed to know every word that Alice had spoken, every idea that had crossed her mind. It sometimes struck me as if she were telling me, speaking of herself in the third person, of her own feelings, as if I were listening to a woman's confidences, the recital of her doubts, scruples and agonies about a living lover. For Mrs. Oak, who seemed the most self-absorbed of creatures in all other matters and utterly incapable of understanding or sympathising with the feelings of other persons, entered completely and passionately into the feelings of this woman, this Alice, who at some moments seemed to be not another woman, but herself. But how could she do it? How could she kill the man she cared for? I once asked her. Because she loved him more than the whole world, she exclaimed, and rising suddenly from her chair, walked towards the window, covering her face with her hands. I could see from the movement of her neck that she was sobbing. She didn't turn round, but motioned to me to go away. Don't let us talk any more about it, she said. I'm ill today, and silly. I closed the door gently behind me. What mystery was there in this woman's life, this listlessness, this strange self-engrossment and stranger mania about people long dead, this indifference and desire to annoy towards her husband? Did it all mean that Alice Oak had loved, or still loved someone, who was not the master of Oakhurst? And his melancholy, his preoccupation, that something about him that told of a broken youth, did it mean that he knew it? 6. The following days, Mrs. Oak was in a condition of quite unusual good spirits. Some visitors, distant relatives, were expected, and although she had expressed the utmost annoyance at the idea of their coming, she was now seized with a fit of housekeeping activity, and was perpetually about arranging things and giving orders, although all arrangements, as usual, had been made and all orders given by her husband. William Oak was quite radiant. If only Alice were always well like this, he exclaimed. If only she would take or, or could take an interest in life, how different things would be. But, he added, as if fearful lest he should be supposed to accuse her in any way, uh, how can she, usually, with her wretched health? Still, it does make me awfully happy to see her like this. I nodded, but I cannot say that I really acquiesced in his views. It seemed to me, particularly with the recollection of yesterday's extraordinary scene, that Mrs. Oak's high spirits were anything but normal. There was something in her unusual activity and still more unusual cheerfulness that was merely nervous and feverish, and I had the whole day 
the impression of dealing with a woman who was ill and who would very speedily collapse. Mrs. Oak spent her day wandering from one room to another and from the garden to the greenhouse, seeing whether all was in order, when, as a matter of fact, all was always in order at Oakhurst. She did not give me any sitting, and not a word was spoken about Alice Oak or Christopher Lovelock. Indeed, to a casual observer, it might have seemed as if all that craze about Lovelock had completely departed or never existed. About five o'clock, as I was strolling among the red brick, round-gabled outhouses, each with its armorial oak and the old-fashioned spalliard kitchen and fruit garden, I saw Mrs. Oak standing, her hands full of York and Lancaster roses, upon the steps facing the stables. A groom was curry-combing a horse, and outside the coach-house was Mr. Oak's little high-wheeled cart. Let us have a drive, suddenly exclaimed Mrs. Oak on seeing me. Look, what a beautiful evening, and look at that dear little cart. It's so long since I've driven, and I feel as if I must drive again. Come with me, and you harness Jim at once and come round to the door. I was quite amazed, and still more so when the cart drove up before the door and Mrs. Oak called me to accompany her. She sent away the groom, and in a minute we were rolling along at a tremendous pace along the yellow sand road with the sere pasture lands, the big oaks on either side. I could scarcely believe my senses. This woman, with her mannish little coat and hat, driving a powerful young horse with the utmost skill, and chattering like a schoolgirl of sixteen, could not be the delicate, morbid, exotic hothouse creature, unable to walk or to do anything, who spent her days lying about on couches in the heavy atmosphere redolent with strange scents and associations of the yellow drawing-room. The movement of the light carriage, the cool draught, and the very grind of the wheels upon the gravel seemed to go to her head like wine. It's so long since I've done this sort of thing, she kept on repeating. So long, so long. Oh, don't you think it's delightful going at this pace with the idea that any moment the horse may come down and we two be killed? And she laughed her childish laugh and turned her face, no longer pale, but flushed with the movement and the excitement towards me. The cart rolled on, quicker and quicker, one gate after another swinging two behind us, as we flew up and down the little hills, across the pasture lands, through the little red brick gabled villages where people came out to see us pass, past the rows of willows along the streams, and the darker green compact hop fields, with the blue and hazy treetops of the horizon getting bluer and more hazy as the yellow light began to graze the ground. At last we got to an open space, a high-lying piece of common land, such as is rare in that ruthlessly utilised country of grazing grounds and hop gardens. Among the low hills of the Weald it seemed quite preternaturally high up, giving a sense that its extent of flat heather and gorse bounded by distant firs, was really on top of the world. The sun was setting just opposite, and its lights lay flat on the ground, staining it with the red and black of the heather, or rather turning it into the surface of a purple sea, canopied over by a bank of dark purple clouds, the jet-light sparkle of the dry ling and gorse tipping the purple like sunlit wavelets. A cold wind swept in our faces, What's the name of this place? I asked. It was the only bit of impressive scenery that I had met in the neighbourhood of Oakhurst. It's called Coates Common, 
answered Mrs. Oak, who had slackened the pace of the horse, and let the reins hang loose about his neck. It was here that Christopher Lovelock was killed. There was a moment's pause, and then she proceeded, tickling the flies from the horse's ears with the end of her whip, looking straight into the sunset, which now rolled a deep purple stream across the heath to our feet. Lovelock was riding home one summer evening from Appledore, when, as he had got halfway across Coates Common, somewhere about here, for I have always heard them mention the pond in the old gravel pits as about the place, he saw two men riding towards him, in whom he presently recognised Nicholas Oak of Oakhurst, accompanied by a groom. Oak of Oakhurst hailed him, and Lovelock rode up to meet him. I'm glad to have met you, Mr. Lovelock, said Nicholas, because I have some important news for you. And so saying, he brought his horse close to the one that Lovelock was riding, and suddenly turning round, fired off a pistol at his head. Lovelock had no time to move, and the bullet, instead of striking him, went straight into the head of his horse which fell beneath him. Lovelock, however, had fallen in such a way as to be able to extricate himself easily from his horse, and drawing his sword, he rushed upon Oak and seized his horse by the bridle. Oak quickly jumped off and drew his sword, and in a minute Lovelock, who was much the better swordsman of the two, was having the better of him. Lovelock had completely disarmed him and got his sword at Oak's throat, crying out to him, that if he would ask forgiveness he should be spared for the sake of their old friendship, when the groom suddenly rode up from behind and shot Lovelock through the back. Lovelock fell, and Oak immediately tried to finish him with his sword, while the groom drew up and held the bridle of Oak's horse. At that moment the sunlight fell upon the groom's face, and Lovelock recognised Mrs. Oak. He cried out, Alice! Alice, it is you who have murdered me, and died. Then Nicholas Oak sprang into his saddle and rode off with his wife, leaving Lovelock dead by the side of his fallen horse. Nicholas Oak had taken the precaution of removing Lovelock's purse and throwing it into the pond, so the murder was put down to certain highwaymen who were about in that part of the country. Alice Oak died many years afterwards, quite an old woman, in the reign of Charles II, but Nicholas did not live very long, and shortly before his death got into a very strange condition, always brooding, and sometimes threatening to kill his wife. They say that in one of these fits, just shortly before his death, he told the whole story of the murder, and made a prophecy, that when the head of his house and master of Oakhurst should marry another Alice Oak, descended from himself and his wife, there should be an end of the Oaks of Oakhurst. You see, it seems to be coming true. We have no children, and I don't suppose we shall ever have any. I, at least, have never wished for them. Mrs. Oak paused and turned her face towards me with the absent smile in her thin cheeks. Her eyes no longer had that distant look. They were strangely eager and fixed. I did not know what to answer. This woman positively frightened me. We remained for a moment in that same place, with the sunlight dying away in crimson ripples on the heather, gilding the yellow banks, the black waters of the pond surrounded by thin rushes and the yellow gravel pits, 
while the wind blew in our faces and bent the ragged warped bluish tops of the firs. Then Mrs. Oak touched the horse, and off we went at a furious pace. We did not exchange a single word, I think, on the way home. Mrs. Oak sat with her eyes fixed on the reins, breaking the silence now and again, only by a word to the horse, urging him to an even more furious pace. The people we met along the roads must have thought that the horse was running away, unless they noticed Mrs. Oak's calm manner and the look of excited enjoyment in her face. To me, it seemed that I was in the hands of a madwoman, and I quietly prepared myself for being upset or dashed against the cart. It had turned cold, and the draught was icy in our faces when we got within sight of the red gables and high chimney stacks of Oakhurst. Mr. Oak was standing before the door. On our approach, I saw a look of relieved suspense, of keen pleasure come into his face. He lifted his wife out of the cart in his strong arms with a kind of chivalrous tenderness. I'm so glad to have you back, darling, he exclaimed. So glad. I was delighted to hear that you'd gone out with the cart, but as you haven't driven for so long, I was beginning to be frightfully anxious, dearest. Where have you been all this time? Mrs. Oak had quickly extricated herself from her husband, who had remained holding her as one might hold a delicate child who has been causing anxiety. The gentleness and affection of the poor fellow had evidently not touched her. She seemed almost to recoil from it. I have taken him to Coates Common, she said with that perverse look which I had noticed before as she pulled off her driving gloves. It's such a splendid old place. Mr. Oak flushed, as if he had bitten upon a sore tooth, and the double gash painted itself scarlet between his eyebrows. Outside, the mists were beginning to rise, veiling the parkland dotted with big black oaks, and from which, in the watery moonlight, rose on all sides the eerie little cry of the lambs separated from their mothers. It was damp and cold, and I shivered. Everybody dies, don't they? So that was my part two of Oak of Oakhurst by Vernon Lee, comprising of parts four, five, and six. Now, it's going to be a three-episode three one, this one, because they're all about equal length. They're roughly about 40 minutes each, so the next one will take us to the end, okay? And in these middle episodes, there's often not a lot to say, really. I will make my observations, as people seem not to mind that so much. So the story develops, and our painter narrator notes the strange fascination Alice Oak has for her namesake from 1626. And... As he keeps mentioning that, remember, I haven't read on to the end. I did take a sneak peek into, there was somebody written an essay on it. Like, you can find anything on the internet, can't you? So I had a look at that, and I sort of do know what happens, but not in detail, just a summary of the plot. So 1626, she keeps mentioning it, Vernon does, and I wonder if that is actually important. Is, is the actual date important? I don't know. We find out that the dress that she's wearing, Alice, 1880 Alice, isn't a copy of 1626 Alice's dress. It's the same one. And she reads the poems as if uh, our poet Lovelock had written them to her. And it's gradually dawning on us and the narrator that in some sense this is the same woman. However, 
they are quite different as well. We don't, so far, I don't have a, a very clear picture of 1626 Alice. I see her dressed as a, a groom and being a highway woman. So I, um, oh, what was that? There was a movie called A Wicked Woman uh, set in kind of the, this sort of similar period, well, around, you know, 17th century, just before the English Civil War. Yeah, so you know all know what Cavaliers means. We, we, I think people in the UK know what Cavaliers are, but people who aren't, the Cavaliers were the, the was the nickname for the soldiers and the people who fought on the side of the king during the English Civil War, and they were fought by the Roundheads, which is the nickname for the Parliamentarian side. So there was the Royalists, the Cavaliers, and the Parliamentarians who were the Roundheads. Okay, you, you may know that, and and I think um, modern Alice, well, actually not modern. 1880, Alice, is, is, is possessed by the spirit of this wild woman, you know, as she rides the cart like a lunatic. So we've got fae, ethereal Alice from 1880, who's a bit weird and narcissistic. And I wonder what I would diagnose her with hmm, if she came in <laughs> to the surgery. I wonder what I would. Hmm. Anyway, but the 1626 Alice is a wild woman, you know. She's, she's naughty. She's a wicked woman. So they're not the same. That's my point of the waffle. Although modern Alice thinks she's the same as 1626 Alice, she does appear to be quite different. 1626 Alice didn't lie around in, on a couch all day and do nout. She was off um, being wild and having affairs with poets. The other thing to say is about poets, these, this poet, Lovelock, he can turn a mean verse, but he's handy with his sword as well. What's happened to poets? I don't see poets as being, you know, tough guys going into bars and sorting things out. Spark. That just reminds me of, do you ever read a book called The Reckoning, which was about Christopher Marlowe's death in a pub in um, South London? And he was, a, he was a bit of a wild boy as well. So clearly in this period, in the Elizabethan sort of uh, a Stuart period, Poets were rock. They were like rappers, really, weren't they? Which is what rappers are. Rappers are poets. And instead of having rapiers, they have um, glocks and oozies. So there you go. I don't know much about rappers. I know a bit more about poets, to be honest. Anyway, there we are. That's about it, really. So enough waffle. If you're using this to go to sleep, please sleep well and dream of Sheep. That's from Kate Bush, isn't it? Dream of Sheep. And if you're wide awake, that's good. And if you're in New Zealand, I understand it's very cold there at the moment. It's not too bad here. I've got my summer shirt on. It's got um, hibiscus flowers on. I don't know if they are hibiscus. I don't know much about those kind of flowers. I know a little bit about wildflowers. Anyway, this is pure waffle now. I'm just delaying the inevitable of me ending it. So, yes, middle part of Oak of Oakhurst. I'm hoping to get the last part done over the next few days, but I am a bit busy, so I hope there isn't too much of a gap anyway. All of you, stay safe, be well, sleep tight, hope the bugs don't bite. That's it. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Some come back. back.
Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?